Morning, everybody. What a cool story, huh? If you do not know Bill Barnes personally, I would highly encourage you to take him out for a cup of coffee or for a lunch and get to know him. He is the most active 90-year-old I know. He's one of the few 90-year-olds I know. Uh, but you know what? Bill represents something um, in our church, and not only that he represents, but that many others of you represent as well, and that is the consistent testimony of people who remain faithful to the Lord through the seasons of life, and how for the rest of us, watching, it is such a great example. It is so encouraging that at 90 years old, Bill is working hard for the Lord, that he's remaining faithful through all the seasons of life, and it is a great example to follow. So thank, thank you, Bill. Thank you for the rest of you who function in that way in our church life, and uh, I pray that we would emulate that. So let's turn our attention to the word, shall we? Please pray with me as we ask for God's help as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Father God in heaven, we thank you uh, for your kindness to us. We thank you that through uh, the ordinary days of the Christian life that you do extraordinary things and that you continue to grow us and mold us and shape us uh, for works of service. Today, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, a passage that's particularly related to works of service, we pray that you give us soft hearts, that you would purify our motivations, that you would energize us for the calling that you have placed on our lives, and that we would do so and engage in such a calling for the sake of your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I wonder which one you think is worse. The person who serves a noble cause that they believe in, but as they serve that cause, they do so in a kind of a self-promoting, self-serving, somewhat disagreeable manner. They still do the work, but the way they go about it is not all that great. Or the person who says they believe in the same noble cause but does absolutely nothing about it. Which one is worse? Let's put it another way. Let's say a person did something for you that was incredibly nice, far superseding sort of common acts of kindness. This person did something for you that changed your life and changed it significantly. Which would you rather see as a person who responds to such an action? A person who gives a mere thank you and goes about their days as normal? Or a person who responds in gratitude, by seeking to serve the other, even though in the way that they're seeking to serve the other, there's an issue of attitude that is fairly poor. Which one would you rather have? A person who does nothing, or a person who pursues the noble thing, but does so in a manner that is seeking glory for themselves? A question kind of stumps me of which I would rather have, for myself anyway, because I don't want to be the person that says I believe in something and then does nothing. And there's almost nothing more distasteful to me than self-promoting people. <laughs> and so clearly, there has to be another option, doesn't there? I've just set up a false dichotomy. There is a way, a third way. The way to be the person who responds in gratitude, in passion, in commitment to the noble cause, while at the very same time doing so in a way that points to good motives and positive results beyond themselves. And that, my friends, is part of the vision for the Christian life. But we know it's a struggle. And so I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2 is found on page 986 of the Pew Bible. And as you turn there, uh, let me remind you, last week we started this new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're calling the series The Ordinary Days. And we're calling it The Ordinary Days with the understanding that the ordinary days in life play such an important and formative role in who we become. Now, there are big days. 
big days that change the trajectory of our life, no doubt. The day that you put your faith in Jesus, the day that you get married, the day that you graduate, the day you get your first job, the day you buy your first house, the day you have a crossroads decision. Big days, and they're important days. But the ordinary days far outweigh the big days in their volume, and they play such an important role in the, who we become. And so 1 Thessalonians is this book that has no sort of big day themes attached to it, really, except for the final day when Jesus returns. But it is a running commentary in many ways about what the Christian life is like through the ordinary days. And in chapter 2, what we're going to look at in just a moment, Paul describes the ordinary days as being ordinary in the fact that they're related to service. And he describes the disposition and the motives of a person who serves God with their life. And he does so really with two fields of view in mind. Number one, he's trying to validate his own ministry to these people who are still getting to know him by saying, hey, look at the way that I've gone about this. But secondly, he's giving an example. He's giving an example to everyone else who would follow in service of the Lord Jesus. Not just that they should serve, but how they should serve. And so with that, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 together. This is what it says, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we th also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as word from men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and, all, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath has come upon them at last. And so as we said, Paul writes to these Christians with a dual field of application. He's trying to validate his own ministry of the gospel before them in their practices. And secondly, he's giving them an example of how Christians should follow the Lord Jesus in serving the Lord Jesus. And he does so by highlighting motivations and goals. And so if you're here today and you would consider yourself to be serving the Lord Jesus, then listen up. This is a good reminder for you. If you're here today and you look at your life and you call yourself a Christian and you say, well, I believe in the Lord Jesus, but I don't know that I'm really serving him, 
then may this be motivation for you to move from a place of simply receiving to a place where you're also giving. The first observation that we make in verses 1 through 8 is that the goal of serving the Lord, the goal of ministry, we call it, is to please God, not personal gain. Now, that seems simple enough. seems obvious enough when you are serving, you're trying to please God. And yet, we know that it's easy to say that from a distance, but when you actually move down into the trench... And you're engaging with people on a day-in and day-out basis when you see people's expectations, people's motives, people's desires, how people treat each other. You get a glimpse pretty clearly that there's a lot of pressure for personal gain, whether that's personal gain of reputation or pleasing other people or the like. And so look at what Paul says, the the three things that they did not do by way of example. The things that they did not do, verse 4, it says, we were entrusted with the gospel, so to speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Likewise, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. God is witness. And verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Jesus. So he says clearly the goal is to please God, not to have personal gain. We didn't seek personal gain by way of pleasing you. We spoke to please God. We didn't speak personal gain by sort of giving you words of flattery that we might be greedy nor did we seek anything from you by way of glory. Rather implied is that the glory was to go to God. Now it's no surprise that the goals of ministry are often called into question for those who serve the Lord. It's a vulnerable place to be. And when these things become your goals, pleasing people, personal gain or personal glory, this is akin to the person who seeks the noble cause, who serves the righteous God, but does so in a self-serving or self-promoting manner. And it just leaves a poor taste in the mouth of everyone who experiences it. And I have to say that in our time and in this era of kind of multiple media channels, self-promotion is at an all-time high, even in the ministry of the gospel. And so it seemed to be fairly confined to individual pockets of people. And then in the 80s, we had some of the TV preachers, which were self-promoting, and not all of them, but some of them. And then in the 90s, we had kind of the Christian self-help gurus, who were really good at articulating what people wanted to hear and in the same time promoting themselves along the way. And then in the 2000s, it became bloggers, self-published books, Instagram celebrities, even among people in ministry and YouTube channels. And the mediums of communication in our time are changing so rapidly and therefore the self-promotion mechanisms are changing so rapidly. And that's just on the macro level. But when we take it all the way down to the ground into the hallways of Old North Church, it's no surprise that many of us kind of struggle with this idea of wanting to be known. We live in a celebrity culture. And I get it. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants recognition. And certainly, at the very least, everybody wants to be appreciated for the things that they do. But you need to know that when you serve to glorify God, sometimes there isn't the accompanying praise from people on earth. And so you ask the question, is recognition from my Father who is in heaven enough? Can you say with Paul 
in verse 4 that we speak not to please men, but to please God. You know, the person who seeks to serve God while seeking self-recognition reminds me of the old story of Joe DiMaggio. Some of you maybe have heard it before. Joe DiMaggio was among the thousands of U.S. troops to come back to the United States in 1945 after the war had ended. Former soldiers were reintegrating into normal life, including famous baseball stars who had gone away to war. And Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee slugger, had came back, come back home and he wanted to be Yankee fan Joe DiMaggio for a couple of days before he went back to the baseball team. And so he took his young son, Joe DiMaggio Jr., to Yankee Stadium one day, and he sat in the mezzanine level of the stadium and decided to take in a game. And as the game went on, a couple of the fans around him recognized him, and then a couple more, and then a couple more, and before you know it, the chant began. If you're a baseball fan, you know the chant. Joe! Joe! Joe DiMaggio! Joe! Joe! Joe DiMaggio! And he sat there, and he looked down at his son to see how his little boy would be taking in the moment and what he would perceive was happening. And the boy looked back up at his father, glowing. And he said, you see, Daddy? They all know who I am. It's cute. <laughs> it's something that any of us could see our kids saying. It's, it's sort of an cute ignorance of the fame. And in some ways, it mirrors the ignorance of people who seek to serve the majestic king of the universe while glorifying themselves at the very same time. It's ignorant to think that somehow your fame in any way would be comparable to the famous one. Because, you know, there's an underlying assumption here that Paul is getting at in this chapter. And the assumption is this, and we see it sort of woven throughout the whole New Testament. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you want to serve him. That no one's twisting your arm to do it. That you actually want to serve him. And that assumption comes in sort of a couple different ways. I mean, the first is clear that when God opens your eyes to the truth of who he is, when you see the majestic king of the universe before you, you can't help but recognize that he is the Lord over all creation. You can't help but know, as Colossians 1 tells us, that all things are made by him, yes, but all things are made for him. But you also can't help but think, not only is he the majestic king over all creation, that must mean that he is the majestic king over my own personal life. And you see yourself clearly for who you really are, particularly in relation to him. And you see yourself as no longer the Lord over your own life, but that your life is truly found and experienced in its greatest expression as you serve the Lord who is the Lord over your life, King Jesus. That's the first assumption that you want to serve him. <laughs> The second part of that same assumption is that when you receive such a tremendous gift, a gift of God's grace, of God's favor, the God of the universe who bestows something so gracious to you, even though you have no deserving nature for it, a grace that is chiefly expressed in sacrifice and applies to you, and the forgiveness of sins, a gift that changes your life right now and changes your destiny for all eternity. When you receive a gift like that, well then, 
the natural reaction is to express gratitude for that gift because of its great grandeur. And that gratitude lasts for the rest of your life. The response correlates with the grandeur of the gift, right? I mean, if somebody gives you $5, you're going to say, hey, thanks. I appreciate that. And then you're going to go about your way. Because $5, as nice as it is, is not going to change your life. But when somebody does something that changes your life, then the response is entirely different. And this your gratitude is expressed throughout the rest of that life. And so we might say that what Paul is getting at here is that our motives in service magnify the master we serve. Our motives in service magnify the master we serve. And so if your motives are self-serving, self-seeking, glory-seeking, looking for personal gain, then you got to struggle about who the master really is. <laughs> that indicates that the wrestling match is that you might think that the master is actually you. <laughs> but if, as Paul writes to this church, your motives are not in pleasing people but pleasing God not in personal gain not in glory for the self then that magnifies the master you actually serve the Lord himself and so we see here that the goals and the motives that become evident and although it might be tempting to apply them to somebody else and you're starting at this kind of early part in the sermon to think to yourself man okay well hmm I wonder I saw that Clay Campfield up here earlier today as one of the elders of the church praying I wonder what his motives are I saw Drumbetta up here strumming away on that guitar like a crazy man. What are his motives? What master is he serving? Those things are usually not all that helpful because the challenge is to look at yourself, isn't it? To apply this to yourself, to say, what are my motives? What am I doing in service of the Lord? And why am I doing it? What type of motivation do I really need? And there lies the struggle. So Paul tells them the things that they did not do. They didn't seek these things. And then he also tells them the things that he did, right? That's where we look at verse 2 and verse 7. Verse 2, look at it with me. He says that, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. They declared the gospel in boldness. That's what they did. And the affliction and humiliation that they had from the previous church at Philippi was one that was significant. And for most of us, when we are talking about the things of God, we hear that kind of pushback that we might get from people. And that causes us to shrink away. We don't want to upset the apple cart too much. For these people, they actually compelled them in the opposite direction. They said, well, I must have touched the nerve right where it was supposed to be. And so they acted even more boldly in the next place that they went. But that boldness is not just sort of a run-over-you, roughshod, evangelistic preaching. Because at the very same time, he says in verse 7, that it's combined with something soft and He uses the word gentle. So there's a boldness of proclamation, but a gentleness of approach. He says in verse 7, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves. Because we've become very dear to us. That idea of becoming very dear to us, that's so often the case when you invest your life in seeing someone else grow in the Lord Jesus and you make yourself available to them. You might have somebody in your life right now where you say, I know that the Lord is prompting me to try to have spiritual conversations, to but I'm nothing like that person. <laughs> I don't even really like that person very much. 
And so you think about a way to start having conversation, and then you start to think about, okay, how do I move to the right? How do I go from conversation to serious conversation? And so we talk about health or politics or whatever. And if they still want to talk to you after that, you move to even more serious conversation. Before you know it, you're talking about the most serious things, the things of life and death and eternity and sin and righteousness and the Lord Jesus himself and a God who loves you and wants to be a part of your life and to save you. And what happens then is so often that somebody who's not like you, somebody you might not even like, actually becomes dear to you because you're investing yourself in them because you see God working in them in ways that you can't do and it's absolutely compelling. And so Paul says that they gave the gospel to them, but they also gave of themselves. David Langley was a retired school teacher who lived in a little village outside of London, England. He was part of our little Baptist church when Amy and I lived in England. And he was one of the longest standing members. He was single his whole life. And the church had been rather stagnant for a number of years and the congregation was continuing to age and there were no families coming into the church. They actually didn't even have a pastor for a lot of years. They hired in a guest preacher every single Sunday for six or seven years and just sort of got by, moving toward a slow death. By the time that Amy and I began to attend the church, Uh, the current membership was not aware of what the Lord was about to do as he would bring in a number of young people, non-Christians, young families over the upcoming months. And for the people who had been a part of that church for a long time, who were part of the older generation, this was hard. I mean, they always wanted a vibrant, growing church, and at the same time, it's hard to have your habits and patterns and preferences challenged. And... So some would complain. I'm sure it was probably hard for David Langley. But you'd never know it. Why? You'd never know it because of the motives and the goals that David Langley had as an elder of that church. Now while some people complained, David actually did just the opposite. He took the ones who were new, the ones who were immature in their faith, the ones who were non-believers, and he started inviting them over to his house regularly. And as he invited them into his house, he was gentle with them. As a mature believer to immature believers, as a mature believer to non-believers, and he not only shared with them the things of life and the things of God, but he also shared himself. And I sat there and I watched that over a number of months. I was a beneficiary of it. And it taught me a lot about the nature and the motives of ministry. It taught me the simple truth that when you serve other people for the sake of serving the Lord, you're not just giving them a nugget of truth or a morsel of encouragement. You're actually giving them part of yourself. And that's why when you serve God that you put a lot of time into study so you can do well in teaching your Sunday school class. You're giving of yourself. That's why you come early or you stay late on Sunday morning looking for ways to help, looking for ways to encourage people, looking for ways to engage people. That's why you open up your home in hospitality. And you could give up Uh, something that you like, some time that you might like, an event that you might like, a meal that you might like, and you give it up for the sake of the other because service at its very core has an element of sacrifice to it. And there's a motive. And the motive is to please God. And it's for the benefit of the other. You aren't in it for you when you serve. There is a great benefit for you. But it doesn't come in the form of fame or glory or money or status. It comes in the form of pleasing God. Not pleasing people. So our motives in service magnify the master that we serve. 
The second element of this is also important, and that is the primary means by which we engage in serving the Lord. There's a lot of different ways to serve the Lord, but there is one primary way. And the primary way that we see in verses 13 through 16 is that the means of this ministry is actually through the word of the Lord himself. And look at verse 13 with me. This is packed with important, like, contemporary truth. He says to them, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's a fundamental difference between the words of men and the word of God. Woe to the one who confuses them. Consider that for a moment. I mean, we all go through life trying to just figure it out along the way. That's what we're all doing, let's be honest. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what next year is going to bring. We don't know how to parent our children in optimal ways. We don't know how to treat our spouse the way that he or she truly needs. We don't know how to excel in our job in maximum efficiency. We're trying to figure it out along the way. That is the human experience for everybody. And so what do we do? We go through life, and we try to figure out this reality. We consider the things of life. We look forward to the things of the future. We try our very best, and along the way, we look for data points to help us. We look for examples to draw upon. We look for help or wisdom or teaching to help us gain knowledge and wisdom. And beyond that, we look for divine guidance. This is how we feel our way through the years that we have on this planet. Woe to the one who confuses the words of man with the words of God. The former comes from the finite. The latter comes from the infinite. The word of man comes with a variety of motives that can and should be questioned. The word of God comes from pure motives that are founded or based in eternal truths. The word of man may claim to offer help, and very often it does. But the word of God not only offers help, but also offers salvation. Woe to the one who confuses the words of men with the words of God. And woe to the one who attempts to speak for God while all the while just offering words of men. That is a dangerous place to be. And so in our day, how do you know? How do you know that it is God who is speaking? The sure and certain way he speaks is through the scriptures. That the God of the universe speaks through what he calls his word. These are the infallible words. These are the ones that you can have sure and certain confidence in. Now, of course, God speaks through internal witness of the Holy Spirit and personal leanings and encouraging words to one another. And the Lord uses those things in the life of believers and communal life together. But the certain word comes from the Bible itself. And that's why Hebrews 4.12 talks about it in such powerful and precise language. It says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And listen to this. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us that this word is that which is at work in you believers. Now there's a couple of observations of what that could mean. First is the obvious. And that is, 
the word does the work of God. That it is the primary means. You hear that phrase at Old North a lot. It's a core conviction of who we are and what we do. The word of God does the work of God. And now we do all kinds of things by way of strategy and personality and external appearance and style and all types of things to help the ministry progress. But all of them are a very, very distant second, very distant second to the primary means that God uses. The word does the work. The word of God does the work of God in a heart that is opened up by the Spirit of God. Secondly, this means that the Word, and we observe in this text, that the Word does the work in those who believe it. Did you notice that? The Word's at work in you believers, he says. And this is where understanding and faith come together and produce something. So, It's one thing to read your Bible for historical information or try to understand a religious system or try to understand the beliefs of the Jews and the Gentiles and the historical context of the ancient world. That's one thing altogether, and there's some value in that. But when reading the Bible and believing it, this is where God works change in your life. When you meet it in a place of belief. And so for the Christian, what does this mean? Well, this means that the disposition that we have when we approach God speaking, when we approach the word, is so important. That the disposition that you have when you go, before you go into your Sunday school class on Sunday morning, or before you go to your small group, on Wednesday night, or before you sit down with your friend at a coffee shop to read the Bible, or before you come to hear a sermon preached, that the disposition that you come with is so important because you want to hear from God himself. You don't just want to hear words of men. Who cares? Who cares what they say? It might be interesting, it might be helpful, it might be entertaining, but it's not going to change your life. But God's words will. And so, a believing disposition to hear and to receive and to be changed. And then it also means something incredible. This also means that Christians who serve God have the opportunity themselves for God to speak through them insofar as they speak his word. Think about that. That the eternal God of the universe would use lowly you or lowly me to to speak himself to other people insofar as we speak his word. I mean, that's amazing to think about. Paul is speaking to these people in 1 Thessalonians. He's writing to them. They they are the ones receiving words of God through him. God uses a human agent to speak his words. And they receive it as from God himself. And that with it comes an incredible responsibility and an incredible privilege. I mean, it is amazing to think that God, God, the majestic king of the universe, would speak through a Sunday school teacher who reads the Bible to first graders. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to think that the words of God would be received in a small group that meets in the fireside room on Wednesday night at Old North Church. That the words of God would be heard and believed and take root in for eternal significance as a leader sits down with a middle school kid after they're all sugared up on whatever candy Sean has given them and all sweaty and gross because of those games that they play. And yet the very words of God himself changes their life. Isn't that amazing? And he does it through a person. The word does the work. And it does it in such a manner that it continues to help us in the midst of difficult circumstances, as he indicates in verses 14 through 16. Now, serving God by being a servant of the word is not the only way to serve God. 
but it is the primary way. It's the way that will change people's lives for eternity. And our motives in this as well magnify the master that we serve. And so I I ask the question, are you serving the Lord? Are you? Are you serving the Lord? And I know the numbers, at least for within our church, I understand that. A lot of you are serving the Lord. And a lot of you aren't. I know that a lot of you are serving the Lord outside our church. And I know a lot of you aren't. And I must say that Overall, I think that our church has a tremendous group of volunteers, servants on a week-in and week-out basis, people who give of themselves, they give of their time, they give of their abilities, their efforts, their preferences, and they do it because they want to please God, not to gain something for themselves. And if you don't serve, I really want to encourage you to start. And I know, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, Pastor Nick, I don't know where to serve. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm good at. Or I don't know what I am good at, but I know that I don't want to teach Sunday school to little kids, and I don't want to hang out with high schoolers, and I really don't want to wipe butts in the nursery. Okay. That's cool. I get that. That's fine. But let's talk about the ways that you can serve then. Because we know that for the Christian, and throughout all of Christian history, and even right now, that the primary avenue that people serve the Lord is serving in their local church family. That God has bound people together. He's bound you, all of you together, with all the people from the first service, in this time and in this place, with a specific purpose to grow in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And the way that we help each other do that is by serving the Lord and serving each other. That's why we serve, to please God with great benefit to the greater community. And that there's 300 people who serve at Old North Church every single week. That's a lot of people saying, I'm going to give up my time, my preferences, my abilities to serve Jesus and to serve you. And yet, you know, from where I sit, I'd love to kind of like twist that a little bit. Because I know that there are a lot of people who do a lot of different things and a lot of people who do multiple things uh, in the life of the church. I would love to sort of set a rule and be able to tell people that you can only serve in the church in one area. And other than that, you got to serve in the context of your home or outside the church. Because we all, I mean, we know, we know how it goes, right? All the statistics, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, or whatever that statistic is. And, And some of that bears out to be true here. Or I can think of people in our church that don't serve in one area, they serve in five. And so we have Sue Miller is a classic example. Most of you know who Sue Miller is. She's been around here like 200 years. She, she serves in the church office. She serves in the welcome center. She serves in the nursery. She serves at most of the events that come here. If there's something going on, Sue Miller is there serving in some capacity. It's like hardwired into who she is. I'd love to be able to say to her, hey, Sue, you only get to do one thing. Because we have to give that person who wants to serve an opportunity to serve and that person who wants to serve to give an opportunity to serve and that person. And there's a line so long of people who want to serve that you only get to do one thing. So pick which one it is. Nope, you can't do that one. It's got to be this one. I'd love to set that rule. I kind of think like that's the way it should be. And if it was that way, what would happen? Well, we'd be shedding, all of us would be shedding our natural desires to just come in, consume, evaluate the spiritual experience, and go back out to life as normal. And we'd all be on the playing field then in a different way. But there's another sense that you can be on the playing field. And we can all be in the playing field together. And that is, serving the Lord isn't just a weekly obligation that you have on Sundays or on Wednesdays. It's not checking the box of being in the nursery or being a greeter or whatever. That's part of it, but that's not the core of it. The core of serving the Lord is actually a disposition for your life. It's not just doing something. 
the core of serving God is a posture for life that's rooted in those assumptions that we talked about, about gratitude and seeing God as Lord. And so you seek to serve God in all kinds of ways. You seek to serve God by opening up your home and having people over for dinner for the goal of intentional conversation that builds them up. And that is serving God or conversation that advances the gospel in someone's life because that pleases God. You seek to serve God by partnering or helping with other organizations who have need outside our local church. There's lots of parachurch organizations we partner with, the Rescue Mission or the Pregnancy Help Center or On Target or C.S. Lewis Institute, all who need people to actively serve. Or you serve God by looking for opportunities to witness the gospel to somebody. People in your life, and even though you, you know that's uncomfortable, you know that the long labor of a relationship for the sake of somebody's eternal good and the glory of God is actually a mechanism by which you serve him. And so you step out in faith and you say, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what I'm going to say when it comes, but I know what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, and I want to do the same. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so you serve God by actively helping widows and widowers in our church. Because as you honor them, you honor the Lord himself. Or you serve God by joining with the other believers in our church who get together to pray for the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God to be enacted in your life. And so we have a Tuesday night group of moms who pray for students. And we have a Wednesday group that meets in the middle of the day in the center of Camp Field to pray for this community. And we have a Wednesday night prayer group that meets here to pray for you. And that is a service to God. And you serve him by coming early on Sunday and actively pursuing conversations with people in this place to encourage them, to edify them, to build them up. And you do so with a certain motive attached. Because your motives and service magnify the one that you serve. Your motives and service magnify the master that you serve. And it is a great privilege. You know, Hudson Taylor, the missionary, once said, all of God's great men have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. They counted on his faithfulness. Many years ago in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, near where I'm from, a church there named Bethlehem Baptist Church needed a Sunday school teacher for junior high boys. The class wasn't bad. It was energetic. And they couldn't find a teacher that would stick it out with these boys. No teacher had been able to control them. Ewald Chaldberg was a Swedish man in the community. And he was asked to teach. And he decided that he would take on the junior high class. Ewald still had his Swedish accent, which was very heavy. And buzzing over the whole church was the word, he's never going to make it. This is going to last two or three weeks, and then the whole thing's going to fall apart. But somehow, Ewald Chaldberg believed God when he took the class, and he stayed with it for year one and year two and year three, and year after year after year, he kept teaching these boys. And some years later, Ewald had passed away, and there was a service in the church to celebrate the 10th anniversary of his death. Imagine that. A church service in worship to God in honor of the 10th anniversary of a normal Swedish immigrant who worked in the community and just taught Sunday school on Sunday mornings. Not a Billy Graham. Not a Charles Spurgeon. Ewald Chaldberg. And at the service, they recounted that over the years, at least 40 men were in Christian service someplace in the world because of this man who taught boys, who loved boys, who gave of himself to them, and who watched over them as they grew. Ewald Chaldberg had faith to believe that God would overcome his human limitations. 
And on the morning of the anniversary celebration, 27 more people stood up and said, I want to be just like that. And they committed themselves to serving God with their life. The obscure immigrant with a Swedish accent found significance because he trusted the Lord who said, my idea is bigger than your idea. Are you serving God? I hope that you'll consider doing it. I hope that you want your life to be marked by something that lasts far beyond yourself and that there's a way to do that and our motives in service magnify the master that we serve. You know, there's this philosopher, Blaise Pascal, who's fascinating for all kinds of reasons, but he says this quote that I'll leave you with. He says, let us do the little things as though they were great because of the majesty of Jesus Christ who does them in us and who lives our life. And do the greatest things as though they were little and easy because he is the one who is omnipotent. Our motives and service magnify the master we serve. Who are you serving and why are you doing it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to move us out of place of self-centeredness, of apathy, self-serving nature to an others-centered focus that's rooted in a desire to please you. God, help us to serve with honor and integrity this noble task of the gospel that you've given us because you are a great and mighty king. Move us to serve faithfully, to see the vision of eternity, to invest in something beyond ourselves. We pray that you would be glorified in this and that your kingdom would grow and expand that more men and women and boys and girls would come to faith in Christ and grow up into his likeness and continue the path of this type of service. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.